Welcome to What Didn't Kill You, where we explore personal and professional stories of adaptation in the face of adversity and the causal relationship between pain and growth. I'm your host, Michael Silverman. I'm an entrepreneur, investor, and student of life that is fascinated by how professional missteps, adverse life circumstances, and pain are harnessed by people and organizations to inform future triumphs and bring deeper meaning to their life and work. Join me as we explore the mindsets, philosophies, and narratives of those who embody Friedrich Nietzsche's timeless aphorism, what does not kill me makes me stronger. Ella Chase, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for doing this. Thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So I'd love to get started by just asking you, what is WealthWorks and how did it come to be? Mm, wonderful question. WealthWorks actually started as a fragment of myself and my business partner, Michelle's imagination in a smoky cafe in Bolivia while we were on an entrepreneurial think tank traveling the world. And we were really looking to discover, not knowing it would become WealthWorks, but really challenging the U.S. corporate culture and like all the things that we are raised in this environment to believe the roles we're supposed to play, et cetera. So WealthWorks for me started, even going on this trip was like, I need to do some living before I do some dying. And one of the things that I'm sure we'll get into in a little bit is around like the preciousness of time and that you can't buy, beg, borrow, or steal more time. And I had been robbing myself of actually living my life because I was living up to other people's expectations and what they thought my life should be. And WealthWorks is created out of not waiting for something external to happen to people and really compelling women who are female inheritors to like be up to something bigger than themselves and to create and to produce and to be of impact on this glorious planet and this one short, fragile, precious life we have. That's awesome. And so it's a coaching, coaching firm and community, right? Correct. Yep. We coach individual and small groups of women and we are gather women across the planet to have conversations that aren't superficial that dive into like the heart of the matter of what it is we want to really be in communication with in this lifetime. That's great. Much needed. What I'd love to ask you, what led to you being in a smoky cafe in Bolivia? (laughs) (laughs) How much time do we have? (laughs) (laughs) As much as you need. Okay. Well, what comes to my mind when I think about the what didn't kill you component of your podcast. I think it is a, for me, a series of obstacles, challenges, breakthroughs, breakdowns that really led to me hitting the eject button on the life that had been created for me for my first 30 something years on the planet. And I had I guess I can drop into a little bit of my past, but I'm a seventh generation inheritor and growing up with the tenets of stewardship and conservation and community, and yet also being tied to some very old money concepts around the role of women in the family 
women are to get married and have babies and be subservient to their male counterparts. And that's like the utopian dream of the generations prior to, I think, this one for many different reasons. But I had the fortune of growing up with my mother and my father, and they moved out to the country. And so I didn't have the same pressures, I think, as a lot of my cousins did, who were rolling around in a lot of the roles people play in order in which to fit into high society. And so I bring that up because I was a junior Olympic downhill ski racer, and I was able to have my own self-ideation and understand my own worth and know my own challenges in a way that many other people don't get that opportunity. And so I was an athlete and a successful one from a very young age. And I didn't struggle with a lot of the other belonging issues that many of people face, but certainly women in a lot of the fear and isolation and loneliness that occurs in multi-generational wealth families with a lot of the expectations above them. So to come back to the question of how I ended up in a smoky cafe in Bolivia, I'd say that it was the culmination of doing everything that was expected of me, like going to the right school, getting the right job, marrying the right person, continuing to excel at that job outside of my family's legacy and business. And for me, every single thing that I accomplished, I felt like hollower and hollower along that path. And that led me to get really honest with myself around what I wanted because no one had really asked me. It just occurred that if I achieved the thing, I'd get the feeling and the opposite was true for me. And so I ended up getting out of my marriage, leaving corporate America. It took uh, one of my friends being given three months to live for me to finally hit the eject button, go up and be a pretty good health advocate for him and then that's when I finally had the courage to like leave the U.S. and my whole family system and the expectations of the world that I had put upon myself to really get curious about what I wanted to create instead of be in reaction to. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Does that answer your question? It does. I think it's a really empowering story too, because it's, it's one of those things where we as human beings always have the ability to go make a better decision tomorrow. But I think so often we get you know, caught in a cycle that's either programmed into us from, from a young age or is uh, part of the, the social, political, economic zeitgeist that we're participating in. Yeah. Um, and I think it's interesting that it took a brush with death um, or, or a, uh, sort of, um, uh, an upfront view of it to have that realization for you. Why do you think that is? Cause I've had, I've had a similar experience. It took my sister dying to, for me to realize so many things about life. And it's, you know, it's that really painful thing that wakes you up. What about that experience made you realize that you needed to change? And was the hollow feeling that you're mentioning, was it apparent to you at the time or did it take that experience for you to realize it? Well, if we're going to dive into the things about trauma and facing life and death, I should probably back up even further. I think you know this, but I'll restate it for our adoring public who's hearing this for the first time that 
my first experience knowingly of a large traumatic event and it is a loss of a sense was my father's accident in 1995. He was my ski coach and he was at a training clinic for me in Lake Placid and he fell and had an accident that left him paralyzed from the neck down. And so in that moment, I feel really lucky because I realized two things. One, money can't solve for everything. And two, life is really fragile and precious and none of it is guaranteed. And I think for me, right, wrong, or indifferent, I doubled down on the overachieving insofar as to like be sure that my father's accident like wasn't for no reason and to take that and continue to be and live and wiggle my toes because I was able to and he wasn't. It's like really, really dive into everything to a perfectionist sense and to a complete burnout sense. And then from there, I think the next part that was from the pain or the confronting life looking differently when I blew my knees out and knew that skiing wasn't going to be my future. And then after that point, I'd say the process of going through a divorce being very painful, the outcome's great. No, nothing there except for the fact that I don't wish it on anybody. And then there was a chunk of years, I remember, I think it was like 08 and 09, where three major figures in my life died. And there's this, I missed much of the morning because I was working so hard. And I had been trained that achieving on a professional scale eclipses a lot of things, not to say that family isn't a thousand percent important, but those deaths made me think about going into the last decade. Like, how do you really want to be? And that's where I got confronted with a lot of, well, your choices aren't really aligning with your values. And it was from stifling my personal life for the almighty dollar career success that I kept thinking I would be rewarded with what was the carrot at the end of the stick of you'll feel great and be satisfied and be surrounded by loving people. And it was the complete opposite. And it was the, the crisis of my dear friend in 20, what was that? 15, where I was finally like, I've missed too many of these. We're all on borrowed time. Like I, regardless of the psychological warfare of the corporate culture, which says if you leave, you're irrelevant. Like I know that I need to show up for my family in this way. And that was really a nice arc between the miracle of my father still being alive and being the longest living C3, 4 quadriplegic ever. And then also seeing my friend who should by all senses be healthy and living. And he too is still alive after being told he had three months to live. So the arc of the pain and the suffering is bookmarked by miracles. And I think that that's really life-giving for me and the message around the pain and the suffering and the trauma and the confronting of death and life really crack open the ability to live more fully and more presently. That's really cool. And it's remarkable that they're both still around. No kidding. Knock on everything. And so as you go through those experiences, I would imagine that you come across folks in your coaching practices that are probably in many of the same patterns. 
how do you think about, is your goal essentially to replicate the realization that you had about life? Is it to coach them to that point without necessarily a a traumatic incident happening? Or do you take a, a different sort of viewpoint of that? I appreciate the question and it's a it's a many tentacled monster to to climb into but I think the first part was around with the coaching like what are who are we coaching or why are we coaching them and I would say it would be wonderful if people proactively without pain or suffering wanted to come and improve themselves And I think it's no strange concept to your experience and this podcast itself that it is a tremendous amount of adversity, pressure, and pain that gets people to the confronting of what's important to them. So we really want wealth works to exist to ease suffering insofar as that people are compelled to find their purpose swiftly, like it is not an indulgence, it is not a luxury, it is something that every human is here for, and you're wasting time, every breath that you are existing where you're not doing that. And for the audience that we serve, it often comes in the form of getting clarity to even figure out what your path is or what your purpose is, then deriving confidence around stepping into that power figuring out because I think you and I have talked about this before, but we don't believe that you have a choice of whether you make an impact. It's just whether it's going to be positive or negative. There's too many resources at play in our world for that to be the case. And then compounded in that is helping women navigate the patriarchy, complex family systems and dynamics, but really what are the leadership components to turning your pain into fuel And being able to share your narrative from a place of owning it and then figuring out how to move that into action to give back, pay forward, whatever your either micro within your own self and your family unit to a global level looks like. And you mentioned finding purpose. And I think that's something that's kind of a term that gets thrown around so much. Yeah. Right. And it's a weighty one that doesn't have a lot of like clear definition to it. I was having a conversation recently about the finding of purpose for folks, particularly when money isn't a factor in the sense that like they don't need to necessarily go get a nine to five to live. And there's a sense of like, well, you have all the resources that you need. Have you seen that dynamic complicate? The search for purpose, particularly if you're, you know, involved in a family enterprise that maybe your last name is identified with or or your family is identified with. How do you think that either complicates or simplifies that that journey? I'm not sure it simplifies it. Um, (laughs) If you find someone who finds it that way, please send them to me. I'd love to sit at their feet and learn (laughs) learn the wise ways. We see. I'll speak about it from my own personal aspect and then also from our clients. For me personally, it's a blessing to be seven generations down because I have no physical conversation with the original wealth creators insofar as I don't have the pressure to perform because I'll never know them. I can read about them in history books. I can see them on walls and museums, but it's not something 
where I have to personally confront them. For a lot of our clients, the paralysis by predecessor concept is real. And I think we see two things that come back to the original answer of like the purpose part of this. And the first part is if parents are concerned that their children won't have the same type of struggle, it's something to consider, but it also can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if you are waiting to see, to have your children prove you right, that they're going to not produce or contribute, then guess what? You're probably going to have that outcome. So I think there's some ownership in the energy of the people parenting and the intentionality around what it is that you want to create and cultivate with your children. But the everybody needs to have a purpose and with the wealth creators, if they're still around, the creation of the wealth had the inherent purpose. There was inherent drive in it. You, they might've started off financially poor, but were purpose rich. And so now when the kids come around, we flip that spectrum and attempting to like shelter the children from adversity because we want them to look different and then hold them accountable for the fact that they don't have the same striving for achievement that you did as a parent is like, hmm, of course. Is that really so far to see? And we look at it from a coaching perspective as the growth mindset versus the fixed mindset. I think of it personally and use the example of like, this isn't the accomplishment Olympics. The children don't have to accomplish as much as the parents did the cultivation of purpose needs to be manufactured because it's not a necessity to survive. And I, the manufacturing component can look many different ways. And some of the problems that we see are there too many choices. So when the growing, rising next generation has access to all sorts of different choices, they don't know what to choose. So from a parenting perspective, creating discomfort is really important. Making sure if it's not in a material sense, like how can you connect through values, like what it is that's important and then help your children be uncomfortable, like help them have adversity. You might need to create situations like perhaps going to outward bound camp or something where they can connect with themselves because the comparison to parents' success is not going to be useful. I don't think it's useful for the parents and we haven't seen it be useful for the children. And also reinforcing the fact that the children finding their own way, these are grown people that we're talking about, actually contributes to the diversification of the family legacy. So we've got to have struggle. We need to find a way to create our own past. The we have to beat the comfort, the homeostasis, and the inertia that comes with having uh, not needing for resources in order to produce in life. Was that too esoteric? Or no, not at all. It's interesting. It, it reflects a, a number of different things that that I've read. I mean, one of my favorite Nietzsche quotes is he he says to my loved ones, "I wish them hardship because otherwise, yes. how else do you know essentially, you know, what kind of human being you are." There was a a great interview with Charles Koch as well, where he said when he was just getting started, his father told him, I hope your first few deals fail. I hope you fail when you first start out because otherwise you're going to think you're too good and you're not going to, 
you know, you're not going to understand what's important. So it's, and I hear the same thing from parents of children who have gone out and been really successful, which is, you know, bemoaning the fact that their kids won't have the same experiences of hardship that they will, that they recognize sort of made them into who they were or the wealth generators that they are, or the, you know, the, the human beings that they are. So it's a, I think that it's a very interesting dynamic that doesn't have a, a clear answer. Yeah. <laughs> so it How, seems to be like a cycle though, that could be useful and you just insert your own personal circumstances around like the learning something testing it, failing, learning from it, and then like re-entering the system with the new learning. And what I think sometimes we get caught up on is when we fail, we re-enter too quickly without grasping the learning component because we need to save face or resources or whatnot. And we, how are we actually spending time to process the failure, which is going to lead to the better outcome because you've got more experiences to draw from and insert metaphors about Einstein and it's 27,000 tries and electricity and like if you gave up beforehand, but the, the need for failing is important. And one of the things that we see is that there's not a lot of space for failure. And especially with women, their families protect them from failure. So we're hurting our chances by trying to enable our children to have a more comfortable future and the onus on women to remain even like safer, like the, the, the deep hearted loving of parents and brothers and things to protect the sisters or the daughters is also the thing that's holding them back from being able to like step into their full mm. self and power. Hmm. I think it's, well, first of all, I'd love to ask you, you know, there's a lot of wealthy families and a lot of family offices, but there's probably only a handful that are seven generations deep. Um, <laughs> and you, you mentioned that... Better uh, not mess it up. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So that's that's kind of what, I, what I'm curious about is you mentioned the importance of sort of passing values around and connecting with the next generation around sort of an understanding of that. What does that look like in a family that has existed for so long and has had wealth for so long? And how did that impact you? Yeah, I have both useful values and then perhaps less productive observations. So to paint a full picture of what life has looked like, would you like me to start with the positive ones? Yeah, let's start positive. Okay. Sure. There's a strong sense of duty in the family that I was raised with, a responsibility to the community. Stewardship, and when I say stewardship, what was ingrained in me was like nothing is actually mine. I get, I'm born into, get to use, and then my duty is to pass along in a better scenario than I received it, assets that can be a myriad of things from properties to jewelry to china sets like a to actual liquid shares to a bunch of different things and so i could really appreciate being raised under the guise of you're here to take care of the community and nothing is yours and i my perception is 
that is not clear in the first few generations because there is some attachment or connection to the wealth creator who might have rightly or not no judgment like feel attached to what they created but this far down the line it's not even from a preservation perspective but more of benevolent perspective that i'm lucky that i was born into this other people have more other people have less that doesn't matter how are you going to show up for the community and how do you take care of what you've been passed and do no harm and possibly make it better for a hundred years from now where I won't know those people either. We're also, I think, I consider this both a positive and a negative, probably from the Great Depression era, which I don't think is unique to my family, but certainly shines through that you reuse everything. Everything that is bought has to have like five purposes before you ever dispose of it. And in the positive realm, raised with like caring for um, nothing's disposable. There's a lot of care and attention around waste and the global recycling world that came about when I was growing up and how it's bad to sometimes hold on. Like it, I can tell you there's a spice rack in this house from like 1942. No one should be eating those spices. And yet like no one's going to throw it away. Like we just can't possibly let go. So good and bad on, on that side. Would you like me to go into what I noticed that might not be as useful but made it this far? That'd be great. That happens? Okay. The struggles that I see across my cousins and in my family, I think there is some inertia around the slowing of drive or complacency. There's a lot of buying into old scripts. So there is a limiting belief, I think, within some of my family members that is around the idea that genetics, if we think about it like a gun metaphor, that genetic loads the gun and the environment pulls the trigger. So how are you actually playing with what's been given to you? But what's missing in that metaphor for me is around like, well, you're actually, who's holding the gun? Like, we don't just get to say like, oh, well, this happened great aunt Sue got in a fight with uncle Jerry 57 years ago. So now their grandkids aren't talking like that's, we don't see that a lot in my family, but like those are some of the things that come along because we are a Northeast family and an old New York family that there's a lot of puritanical imprints in our DNA, such as like addiction, eating disorders. You don't talk about anything that's sociably unacceptable. And I think that there are things that, we miss in the storytelling if you're not allowed to be who you are like of course then that compounds your inability to participate in society in a meaningful way but overall the fact that we're all still sitting here and i don't know if we'll cure coronavirus in our family but hopefully someone somewhere is still keeping their eye on the prize it's just i feel really blessed to have structures in place that i don't have to think about so those a lot of early wealth creator conversations around setting up systems of governance are already firmly in place in my family. And I just have the duty to carry them out. Now, changing those is a struggle, which has its own ups and downs, but I can appreciate the forethought that went into the generations before me that crafted what I'm able to, to use today. 
you mentioned there being, you know, subjects that maybe you can't talk about, or there's a a notion of maybe discussing something is contrary to, to the image that might be projected or what have you. You've also got with WealthWorks, you've got a great blog. And one of the things that you talk about is this notion of building empathy in the communication between the generations. So how do you feel that works in a, a family like yours, but then also with your coaching clients as you try and meld this, you know, maybe the, the older generation has a particular perspective, but what the younger generation really needs is, you know, an understanding of where they're coming from and vice versa. How do you make space for that both in, in your family and also for your coaching <laughs> clients? I'll try my best. I don't think there's a silver bullet response. Let me try to attempt the coaching client side first before I just carry on about my my family. We look at communication as a key integer in successfully navigating life, but we lean heavily on NVC or nonviolent communication. Are you familiar at all with that or should I... Give a quick... Only superficially, would love to understand okay. more about what that. Yeah, so it is getting really clear on what your needs and requests are, and for anyone in a situation where you're dealing with family dynamics, I think it's not unique to family dynamics. Is I'm coming into a conversation, say, with my father, and he's going to be upset with me for something and I get caught up in the emotion of what's happening and triggered. And so I'm not actually acting from my naturally creative, resourceful and whole self and coming into the, out of the conversation. If I know what I need and I know what I want to request out of it. So it could be something like, Hey dad, I have a need to be heard right now. And when you talk over me, that doesn't help. And I don't feel like that need is being met. So my request is, that you be quiet for two minutes to listen to my side of the story. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to oblige, but until I know what I actually want out of that dialogue, the chances that I'll be pleased are very low. And so there's a quick formula that is in needs-based communication. You can nvc.org, I think it is, or .com. Learn about like how you actually structure a conversation a lot of places that we send people to look first are around their complaints because whatever you're complaining about has an unneed met underneath it. So if I'm complaining about traffic, even I have an unneed met to be at home or to be in solitude or to not be um, with other people. Like I have a priority that's not being met from an empathy perspective we found it to be really powerful to help our clients put themselves in, I'm going to just use generically their parents' shoes, whoever's the person in power for talking about these multi-generational family businesses and say, what do I think that my father wants to hear out of this? Like, what do you think his struggle was 40 years ago when he created this business? And instead of thinking about like what I want out of it, building the bridge of compassion and empathy to really be able to listen for something that's not evaluation, judgment, or assessment. Because when we listen for understanding, like new things appear. And there's like, we spend months talking about this in our engagement. So certainly this is just a, 
a scratch at the surface. Finally, from a communication perspective, one that is powerful even for me to remind myself is I have versus I am. So if we identify with the fact that like I am old per se, then it's a state of being that is unchangeable. But if you look at I have age under my belt, then it's separating you from that static state and it can be something dynamic. So if you're the patriarch and you're feeling like I'm old and irrelevant, the change can be like, I have a lot of age under my belt and therefore a lot of wisdom that I need to pass along to the next generation before my time here is no longer. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. I think that's a dynamic that has a lot of different applications across the board, right? Not identifying totally. with whatever your you know, potentially negative observation may be about yourself or about anything else, whether it comes to like maybe a, a diagnosis of some kind or a character mm-hmm. flaw or a mistake that you made, like cr- just creating that separation between, you know, that thing, whatever it might be, and your identity, I think is is a really powerful tool, especially in like inner narratives. Oh, completely. And it's useful for everything. There's this great communication pathologist and cognitive neuroscientist named Dr. Caroline Leaf. Leaf is in like a tree that I would highly recommend. She's got a podcast and a couple books, and it's just fascinating to listen to her talk about how you can separate your mind from your brain and your brain creates the response. So when we actually control our mind, we can change the way that our brain sends messages to our body, which can change our thoughts and our actions and healing and a a bunch of other things. But I'm no expert on her. I just am an an admirer of her. That's great. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we live in a society where it's, we constantly are looking to put labels on everything and, you know, define things and, and put everything in a neat box. And so it's, it's so easy to lose your identity up in, in whatever those things are, including, you know, the, the family that you come from or, or what have you. So it's, uh, I think that separation really between, you know, who are you as yourself and then who are you as a member of your, of your family is an interesting journey. Yeah, we, um, I appreciate you saying that because one, I can also tie that back into my own experience with my family because I realized I didn't answer that part of the question. But one of the major things that WealthWorks works on is like you have to step away in order to step forward. So you have to like get out of the shadow of the roles that you either bought into or were assigned to you, mother, daughter, wife, addict, like pick whatever it is and be able to create some success in a field that's outside of that shadow. And then you're able to reintegrate back into the family with your new sense of self and your new storyline. And of course, better and more empathetic listening and of all of the other things that allow you to be able to have that self-worth that often gets caught up in titles and buildings and privilege and balance sheets and all of the things that detract us from our actual humanity. Yeah, there's a great biography on on John D. Rockefeller by Ron Chernow that I just read. But in oh. it, uh, Rockefeller's son, Junior, has the comment in some of his papers that at least the secretary here knows her worth because she worked for. Her. And this is, you know, he's just left college and he's working at Standard Oil. And you know, it's it, I think there's something to that in in anybody that that joins that that sort of family enterprise or or there's the um, 
sort of the the ghost of, of nepotism potentially. <laughs> often not a ghost, often real life nepotism. Yeah, but exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, I think just being able to create that space for yourself where you can understand, yeah, this is who I am separate from you know, my incredibly accomplished father, my incredibly accomplished ancestors or my famous family. And you, you mentioned, again, another great blog post you guys have on, on WealthWorks is about imposter syndrome. Wow, look at you reading the blogs, <laughs> loving it, Michael. So how do you guys navigate that with your clients, with yourselves in terms of being able to have a lot of opportunities, but probably a lot of those opportunities are at least in part associated with, you know, where you come from or things that maybe you haven't necessarily worked really hard at. So how do you balance that with your clients? It is a mountain with no top. This is a journey with no end as far as I'm aware, but I'll keep striking the balance as long as I am of this world. With our clients, it the imposter syndrome happens to everybody. So I think that that's like the first most critical key where you always think other people have their lives more together than you feel like your life is together. As a general stereotype, you can look to someone aspirationally, slight derail, but like I think Instagram is ruining this for a lot of people totally. around like, here's the ideal life that I'm like living all the time. And it's it's not imposter syndrome. It's being no, those an are, imposter. Those are imposters. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> but because we've got access, to globalization and technology and Google that we come to conclusions about other people really, really quickly. And in one example, that could be like, a, since we mostly work with females, a daughter like Googling her family's company and then dividing it by the number of people in her family and figuring out like, that's what she thinks her inheritance is going to be. And that is like nowhere near how that's actually going to roll out. But to get to the imposter syndrome component, being able to notice that you're feeling unworthy or unrighted is like the first most critical step as in for many things, simple and really, really hard to do. We, and for myself, who also still experiences imposter syndrome, there's a couple of things at play because I do want to acknowledge that 1,000% I am afforded privileges, access, and opportunities that many people will never get. And I don't even know that that's happening. So some of the imposter syndrome is like, did I get this on my own worth? Or is this because my dad made a phone call? And I can tell you that I'm sure there's been many phone calls made and I still have to sit in the merit of my own credibility across from an interview or whatever it is. But we could have a whole nother discussion on privilege just in and of itself and unpacking that component from an imposter syndrome perspective. No one's got it completely figured out. And anyone who does is at the end of their journey of learning and therefore it's ultimately dying because if you're not living, you're dying. And I just mean that even mentally speaking, realizing that you don't have to have it all figured out to move forward having a support system around you of people that you can trust to check in with and be like, am I crazy or is this happening? That's what a lot of people actually come to WealthWorks just for that accountability piece of being like, can someone get some outside eyes on this? And is this because Uncle Fred called the business or is it not? 
and 50-50, it depends. Like I'm not going to say that the outcome is any different, but really just understanding you're not alone, understanding you don't even have to change the behavior, just noticing it and then reaching out for support. And then we find the 87 things that are true about you inherently and intrinsically that aren't dependent on someone else's opinion of you or even your performance and go from there. And building those foundational blocks of your own internal credibility can help combat imposter syndrome when it strikes and also being able to recognize it faster. Some people will go six months and not realize they've been living under the story they tell themselves, which is not actually true. We had a client recently who decided that her father was out to sabotage her. And that was the reason that he wouldn't give her the president title, even though she'd been working there for 15 years and decidedly earned it. And it turns out that he actually decided he was going to take a mental break from thinking about the business and go golfing. And it had nothing to do with her at all, but she had unraveled her self-worth over those months so much for that. She was like a puddle in the middle of the room being like, I can't do this at all. And she is president and she runs a great organization. And it's just, we've got to stop ourselves and stop the train loop that goes on with these thoughts. And imposter syndrome is a real, real finicky saboteur. Yeah. I, I think that's true, you know, in, in families, but, but in organizations too, it's the more you can communicate transparently about what those needs are, what those observations are, the more you nip that in the bud. So yeah, and you've got to have a chain of command that uh, that allows for that, though. So the struggle that we see, and I can see this in my own family, too, there are standard operating procedures for how things go. But if the people who are in those positions of power, decision-making, et cetera, don't, aren't acting in integrity to honor those systems, then it really doesn't matter how good the system is. So getting, trusting that taking more time to get people in the right places to serve the families is something that we often get impatient about. Sure. Well, I guess you need the leaders to want to go create that space uh, for those conversations to be had. Yeah. And it also, with a lot of these families, myself included, it's such a tangled web between what's business and what's personal and then what's familial and how do you come to Thanksgiving and not bring something from the boardroom if that's not the appropriate time or space to do that. Like, where do you honor your boundaries and where does your family honor your boundaries? Cause you might go into Thanksgiving thinking, I don't want to talk work at all. And then you get pulled in and I don't want to say it's always meant by your mother. Who's like, and uh, we're thinking about this for the business and I need you to put a press release out by tomorrow. And you're like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. I just thought I was coming to eat pumpkin pie. Like what do we, <laughs> can we bump the brakes on this? And so we do a lot of like boundary setting and that's something I also think is a mountain with no top, but women particularly aren't good at saying no. And we do a lot of work around a no is actually a yes for something else. And we've got to trust that we're going to say no to the good opportunities in order to say yes to the best opportunities and not just taking the lowest hanging fruit because our imposter syndrome is high. Our uh, cynicism is high. We don't have the self-work that we want. So we might take the less paying, less stimulating job because we don't think that the next one's going to come around the corner. And how do you create true resonance within yourself to know what is worth your time and energy and what 
it's simply going to be a distraction in the long term. And is that that process, I would imagine that's not something that happens in a day. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, maybe for some people it happens in a day. Do you map that out when you work with clients? Map out what like I'm, I, you know, I'd like my client to get to this point, being comfortable communicating that, those mm. sorts of things, and and this is how we're going to go get there. Or is it is it more organic than that? No, it's a really good question. We make plans, and we make like three to five versions of the plan to try to consider many of the unforeseen circumstances that happen, and then we also sit in the fact, like back to what I was saying about needs and requests, you can request something and be denied it. So how are you going to stand regardless of the outcome in what you know to be true for yourself? So in boundary setting, if you say, look, don't come into my office until it's 6 p.m. and someone's violating your boundaries and coming in every other hour, then you are at choice. You can either leave that environment if you can't change it, or you need to go have a conversation about the boundaries. But putting, instead of this is a little bit of a, of a leap, but instead of being in reaction to be in creation, and the only difference between those two words are, is that the C is moved. So re- reaction and creation are exactly the same word, except you move the C to the front. So it's like a very subtle internal learning that happens to be able to not have people walk all over you. And I can tell you from firsthand experience that it is incredible that people intuitively know what they can get away with. And so once you're clear on your boundaries and who you are as a person and what you're willing to walk away from, people start treating you differently because they know they can't get away with abuse, misuse that boundary that was previously not set. Hmm, That's fascinating. Is there, if you could, you know, wave a magic wand and say, this is what good looks like in terms of describing the way that, that families interact with each other, describing the way that your clients view themselves. As you go into something, is there sort of an ideal holistic result or is, is it really kind of a case-by-case basis as you think about designing a, a, family, a family dynamic and particularly an empowered female member of that family? Yes, there is a very utopian outlook <laughs> to be had which my family shareholder meeting was actually this past weekend. So a lot of this is, is fresh on my heart. But I, I have this uncle who is a lovely person and not necessarily the best communicator. And I think he would agree and is perhaps pretty stubborn. And the, the night before the, well, whatever, Friday night, he was like, and remember, we're here for peace, love, and humanity. We're all going to get along. Let's put that out in there. And so there are many things to squabble on. There's injustices that happen within family systems and within the world. And at the end of the day, may your aligned values be the container that like holds the family together and we see many families where you do you do not have to agree you don't have to like each other one of the strongest boundaries you can set is stop being abused by someone who takes advantage of your time or your energy or your resources some of your listeners might know like we've got people where the child inherits the money the grown adult child and the parents get divorced and then all of a sudden the often the person who is left 
behind who received the funds. So like if the money came from the dad's side and they get divorced, then the mom's coming to the kid to like fund businesses in like a very reverse way to get access to resources. So like, where are you setting boundaries that you're not going to let your resources, time and money get wasted or you misused? And in the what's best practices for family governance, it is be very clear on who you are and what you stand for as a family and create paths of freedom where people can fail forward and fail often and still be welcomed back. So there's, a, there's an independence component and also a unity component that we see works fairly well. And there are parts of the family in many of the families that we work with that are disenfranchised or disown their family members. And sometimes that's the best choice too. If you can't get along and you've tried everything that you can, walk away, figure out what makes sense for a clean break. And that doesn't mean that your kids can't play together anymore. Like keep, keep your side of the street clean and do the best that you can to foster that camaraderie that's needed in order to have hundreds of year old family systems. If they're, People listening right now that are kind of navigating some of these dynamics, whether it's an older generation looking to the next or vice versa, are there any specific practices that you recommend or sort of things to learn about or or study up on? Any resources there? Oh boy, there's like a thousand resources. Can you give me a specific type of scenario that? Yeah, well, let's let's say specifically sort of your clientele. So a female member of a of a wealthy family who's trying to find her place or, or potentially try and improve the way that her family relates to each other and is trying to find a sort of purpose and identity and all that. The first thing that I would say, and this is a biased opinion, is the like step away, get out for a second, get a clear head. Sometimes that looks like backpacking through Europe. Sometimes that looks like going to an ashram in India. Sometimes that looks like moving to a bedroom that's three doors away. Like it doesn't, you don't have to leave the country in order to do it. And we find so many families or women in this case that have to leave their small hometowns where their family employs the whole town and their last name is overly known and they can't build any trust because everyone might take advantage of them. We see that a lot, especially as women get older, their concern over people's intention and in being in relationship with them romantically, uh, familially or friendship wise very much becomes a question. So if you can step away and then think about what it is you're curious about learning. The great thing about the internet is there are so many resources. We lean a lot on family systems theory, Bowen Family Systems, the Purposeful Planning Institute does an incredible job of bringing together a bunch of different resources for families that are trying to navigate this purpose. We love 2164's ideology for philanthropy and philanthropic giving. There's a whole web of resources available. There's a lot of communities. And if you are interested in one, drop me a line. I'd be happy to connect you. Men or women across the country that are being more organically fed 
and I mean that to say like different from an institution who's trying to recruit you into their like next gen program so that they can potentially keep you in their web. I'm, I want to be careful about how I say this. <laughs> there are agnostic services out there and places that you can go and gather, be it online. I guess right now online would be most important. We're not doing a lot of gathering in person, but when yeah. that picks back up again, <laughs> many people of all ages are just really curious to understand what they don't know. I'd also say to if you are in charge of assets or know you'll be getting handed them, financial literacy is a big thing that people still struggle with, women especially. So not being afraid to ask questions and ask questions till you get an answer you can understand. And so resources around like, what questions should I be asking are things we get sourced a lot. And there are many, many good resources out there that handle it. And if it's overwhelming, then I'd be happy to answer people's questions for that too. It's, there's so many different levels. Oh, prenups. We get asked tons of questions about prenups. Like there's postnups. It's just, that's so there's, because it's a full life in the world that I live in family life cycle is your entire life that there are too many resources to name overtly, but I think I gave like four or five that hopefully will be a good starting point. Yeah, absolutely. Would that answer change at all? If I said it was a patriarch trying to figure out how to connect with the next generation better and, mm. and satisfied with the way that's Tell going. him to call me. <laughs> <laughs> there are Jay Hughes. Are you familiar with Jay Hughes? I am. Yep. Okay. So I think he, as the godfather of this world that Maybe we all you could live mention in. though, who, who is Jay Hughes? Sure. So James is his full name. James Hughes is a formerly a an estate planning attorney and his father was so he had he's a wonderful man in his late 70s now is kind enough to talk to us from time to time and he wrote several books along with Jim Grubman on a few of them who is a psychologist a money psychologist and they are um, leaders in the space that started 30 40 years ago because all of these concepts are fairly new and talks about the cycle of the gift and strangers in paradise and these concepts around what is it like to bring children into wealth. Jolene Godfrey, I think, has the book, The Silver Spooned Kids. So there's a lot of, since I think, historically speaking, older generations are into the the reading of the books versus potentially playing of games and things on the internet that help look at ways to think about family governance. That's great. And, uh, you know, I think at this point, I really appreciate all the time that you've, you've spent with me today. Would love to just wrap up by asking you if people are wanting to get in touch or, or wanting to have a oh. conversation. <laughs> How can they reach you? And, you know, if, if there's any other sort of uh, overarching uh, message you'd like to share. I appreciate that. Thanks for having the conversation. I feel like there are many chapters of this book that we could go down. It's so like many. We'll do that in part two. Something. Yeah, yep, part exactly. If people want to find us, you can find us at wealth, W-E-L-L-T-H dash works.com. And I think you can sign up for the blog on there that Michael's been 
referring to on Instagram. We are WealthWorks, W-E-L-L-T-H-W-O-R-K-S. And you're welcome to email me, which is Ella at the same thing I just said at any time. And if you want to call me, my number is (laughs) 617-866-0007. Come on in. That's terrific. Ella, thank you so much. This has been really fun. I appreciate you making some time and hopefully the world gets back to normal and and we can go skiing this winter. I know. I know. I can't wait to go skiing. (laughs) But honestly, this is such a wonderfully needed topic. And I love the work that you've been doing for yourself over the past several years and the courage that it takes to get really vulnerable. You've created a safe space to do that. And I think the more sharing that we could do about the things that didn't kill us, the faster we'll evolve and the more connected we'll be. So thank you. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. All right. Be safe. Be well. I'll chat with you soon. See you on the slopes. Thanks, Ella. Hi, it's Michael again. Thanks for listening to this installment of What Didn't Kill You. If you like what you heard, I encourage you to share with friends, subscribe, and review. You can continue the conversation and share your own stories of what didn't kill you at whatdidn'tkillyou.com, and you can follow along at whatdidn'tkillyou on Instagram. I wish you great fortune, growth, and clarity as you navigate your own path, and I hope today's conversation may have contributed in some small way. See you next time.